0: What a great song, uh, Elizabeth. Yeah, Let's just uh, pray before we start. Father, we, uh, we do thank you and we do hail you as Lord uh, King Jesus, the uh, Saviour of the, uh, the world and the Lord of heaven and earth. We just uh, commit this time to you. We ask that you might open our hearts and uh, open our eyes and recognise that uh, what you've said to humanity is absolutely true. And uh, we want to uh, just declare uh, today that uh, we can trust your word absolutely implicitly in Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Well, let's see if we can uh, be a little bit less technologically challenged again. And uh, uh, just give me a, a moment. Right. Okay, well, uh, uh, isn't that, uh, that song really uh, appropriate for the, uh, the sort of things that we've had in the, uh, the readings? And uh, as I read from the second passage in, in Acts, uh, Paul said to the Greeks, he said, "...truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked." But now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he set a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man that he's appointed. And he's given proof of that by raising him from the dead. And that really is the, uh, the, the crux of uh, you know, my experience. What I, was, uh, what I was transformed by is the knowledge that Jesus Christ had really risen from the dead and uh, what a uh, transforming experience that was. Anyway, I started off by uh, talking about all the things that we do, but I didn't really explain what Creation Ministries is actually all about. And what we are all about really is the truth of this book in its absolute entirety. And uh, You might say, surely uh, all churches that call themselves evangelical uh, believe that, that the Bible is the Word of God and it's true in its entirety. But in practice they don't really. And I found that out with uh, some people in the uh, lovely fellowship that Heather was involved in in England. They had to give me all sorts of explanations that really departed from the truth of the Word of God. And the same thing happens unfortunately in modern Christian churches because the Bible clearly teaches a young earth and a global flood and many Christians don't believe that. I was given all sorts of explanations. I now know what they were called. All to try and fit in what the world wants to tell you about the long ages, the millions and billions of years, and that's completely contrary, really, to what the uh, the Bible says. And I suppose the uh, the first one that I was given was this idea of the gap theory. And the gap theory is the idea that maybe between the first two verses of uh, Genesis chapter 1, between verses 1 and 2, there is a possible millions and billions of years gap because the Bible tells us that uh, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and empty. Well, they looked at that and they thought, well, maybe that's a, uh, a mistranslation. Maybe we can translate it as the earth became formless and empty and therefore perhaps we can put in a uh, millions or billions of years gap between those first two verses. So that was known as the gap theory. But then the, uh, the next one was the day age theory that although the, uh, the Bible says God created over six days, Maybe a day can be more than just a 24-hour day. And they use as the uh, example of that what uh, we read in 2 Peter about uh, with the Lord a day as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. But like all of the other apostles when they were writing, they often loosely quoted the Old Testament. And of course Peter was quoting from Psalm 90 verse 4 it says a day can be a, a, a thousand years and a thousand years is a day all like a watch in the night which really means that time just means nothing to God and there's no way that you can use that to justify long ages as represented by each day and then the next one was what the, a variation of that what they called progressive creation, that uh, he uh, did one thing on the first day or period and then an, uh, another on the next and so on, progressive creation. The most popular these days amongst uh, evangelicals is what they call the framework hypothesis and they take the, uh, the six days of creation and they say they don't really mean uh, six 24-hour days. What God did on the first three days was he, he made the sea and the atmosphere and the earth and then he filled them with the fish and the birds and then people and animals. So they, they can get rid of the, uh, the idea of 24 hour days because it's a theological framework and uh, it doesn't really uh, represent time. And that's a very, very popular view amongst a lot of uh, evangelical churches uh, in Australia and uh, in Sydney. And I suppose you get from that what they call theistic evolution, the, uh, the idea that uh, God started the ball rolling by uh, creating and then evolution took over and uh, we end up with, uh, with what we've got now. And uh, that could have taken its course supposedly over millions and billions of years, and then finally, I suppose, we get what they uh, they called the uh, the local flood idea, because the uh, secular scientific world doesn't believe in a, uh, a global flood. Churches that will accept evolution have to uh, uh, make Genesis uh, chapters six to nine talk about a a local flood. Nothing global about it, but of course, when you look at the uh, the wording of those chapters, it says all, every, highest, and so on, all of those uh, superlative type statements. So there really isn't any way that you can get away with the idea that the uh, the flood uh, could be local. But these are the sort of things that uh, Christians over the years, probably since Darwin have come up with to try and accommodate the uh, millions and billions of years that the, uh, the, uh, the world teaches. Anyway, uh, I know, as I said earlier, that you've had uh, d- different creation speakers here and we all come from uh, different backgrounds. So we all tend to uh, focus on the area of specialty that's pertinent, really, to our background. Now... My background is, uh, is medical, so I tend to focus on uh, biological, uh, biological things to demonstrate the truth of the, uh, the Word of God. So this talk is going to be largely around uh, biology. And when you think of uh, the, uh, the basic cell that uh, was believed to be around the time of Darwin when they only had ordinary light microscopes, 100 to 150 years ago, they could look at the uh, cells under a microscope and they saw this round thing with a dark spot in the, uh, the middle which is its nucleus and to them it looked pretty basic, just a, a, a dark dot with uh, a, a, something surrounding it, fairly simple. They had absolutely no idea of its complexity. They didn't know about the complexity of the nucleus or the cell itself and uh, uh, in truth, actually, the rest of the cell might even be much more complex than uh, than the the nucleus, but they didn 't know that within that nucleus was the stuff that we now know as dna they didn 't know what uh, that there was such a thing of as DNA. We do now, and we do know that it 's broken up into twenty three pairs of packages that we call chromosomes and you'll often see a diagram that looks like that. Chromosomes are this uh, funny curling shape and they're they're pretty much matching pairs apart from the uh, the last two and uh, uh, those two are the X chromosome and the Y chromosome and uh, if you have two X's then you're female, if you have an X and a Y then you're male. Now that, of course, is being challenged a bit uh, these days and to even talk like that is probably hate speech. But nevertheless, I think really we have to face the facts that that is the biological truth. And chromosomes are packages of DNA. And so we're going to have a look at what it would look like if we unraveled one of them. And this diagram has uh, taken one of those uh, funny-looking chromosomes out and unravelled it. And it's a bit like uh, unravelling a skein of wool. You will get this long string of stuff that we call DNA. And we know that if you take a segment of that DNA, that's what we refer to as a gene. And if you had blue eyes, then you would have a stretch of DNA that codes for uh, those blue eyes. So, what really is the stuff that we call DNA? Well, you'll often see a, a classic diagram like this. And it's a bit like a twisted ladder. It's a biological compound made up of organic molecules, but it looks like a twisted ladder and uh, that ladder has got sides and like a ladder it's got rungs and of course this is on a, uh, a nano scale. and the sides of the, uh, the ladder that we've got here in yellow they're a compound of a sugar and phosphorus it's a sugar phosphate uh, compound and the sugar is a sugar called deoxyribose and that's where DNA gets its name And when you look at all of these technical sounding names, in organic chemistry, if you see something ending in O's, it means it's a sugar. Like we've got glucose and sucrose and fructose and lactose and ribose and deoxyribose. So that's where DNA gets its its name from. We also uh, have the rungs of the ladder. And the rungs of the ladder are the four nucleic acids or nucleotide bases and the four of them are adenine, thymine, cytosine and guanine and for simplicity we like to give them their first letters A, T, G and C and each rung of the ladder has got two of them and A always lines up with T and G always lines up with C and when you line them up a bit like this, you can see that it's a code. You know, you see A, T, G, A and, and so on. So, it's obviously a program using four letters. Now, if you compare it with a, a computer type program, the computer program uses all the uh, symbols on the keyboard and it looks like it's a whole lot of symbols but really uh, there are only each symbol is made up of only two, an on or an off switch. So uh, a computer program really only has two symbols uh, whereas DNA has four. So it's a, a pretty complicated program. And there is quite a lot of it. And I want to show you uh, an example of just how much of this code or program we've got. This is a guy called uh, Craig Venter. Now, back in the, the late, uh, well, in the, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, there was a program to map the entire human genome, all of our DNA, and spell it out. And the mapping of that program took nearly 15 years and there were two projects going at the same time. One was a private project, one was a public project and this guy, Craig Venter, he headed up the private project and he was the first person on earth to actually get his entire DNA, what we call his genome, printed out. And this is a a photo of him Standing in front of his printout. And as you can see, it is, a, uh, it is an absolute library. There were 175 volumes, 175, 750 A4 sheets per volume, each page printed both sides in Times New Roman and uh, uh, in eight-point font, so pretty small, and uh, narrow margins, uh, uh, and uh, uh, in all 131,000 sheets and uh, uh, 262,000 pages. And this is what each sheet looked like. And uh, if we have a look at a close-up of that, this is what it is. Now, when you're, uh, you're looking at 232,000 pages of code like that in 175 volumes with 750 pages in each volume. Now, that is quite a large program, I think you will agree. And, and and even the if you are an evolutionist, you have to believe that that program wrote itself. Now, not even the smallest programs write themselves. It's impossible for any program to write itself. And a program of that size was written by an intelligence absolutely beyond our comprehension. The Lord God himself... Uh, uh, the complexity of it even exceeds the superficial appearance of it because it runs itself, it corrects itself it repairs itself and every living thing has got a program something like that. Obviously not always that size but even the smallest cells we know like bacteria have got a, a pretty sizable program and uh, to get from a bacterium to a human obviously you would have to add a whole lot of extra information but there's really no way of adding uh, uh, information that is meaningful and if we take the example of uh, the human program we, could, we do add bits of, uh, extra bits of information if you add an extra chromosome on the site 21 you get Down syndrome so adding extra things Simply does not help, and the same goes for any copying mistakes in the uh, the program, things that we call mutations. Now, computer programs, as we know, get corrupted over time, and our programs get a bit corrupted over time as well. And it's uh, estimated that each one of us develops about a hundred extra. Changes, mutations over our lifetime. We've inherited all the ones from our great-grandparents and our grandparents and our parents and we develop an extra 100 or so that we pass on to our children. What we observe though is that those changes or mutations are almost invariably harmful. They go backwards or downhill. They don't improve the program. And, I mean, common sense tells you this. You can't improve a program by randomly changing the symbols. If it's a computer program, it probably won't run at all. Biological programs are a bit uh, uh, more forgiving than that and they still run, but they don't run as well if you try changing them. And uh, it's interesting that the uh, secular world used to point to uh, examples of what they said were beneficial mutations. But of course they weren't. They were things that were going backwards. And the classic example they used to talk about was a condition called sickle cell anemia. And that's a, a condition that occurs in a lot of people of African descent. And it's a, uh, it's a problem with the envelope of their red blood cells. And they're fragile, so those people are anemic And unfortunately, if they go to a place of high altitude, then they take on this sickle shape and the people get very, very sick. But interestingly enough, they seem to be resistant to malaria. So the evolutionists said, well, there's a great example. They're resistant to malaria, a beneficial change. But of course, it isn't a beneficial change. The reason they're resistant to malaria is because the malaria parasite proliferates in red blood cells and if you've got a defective red blood cell, it can't proliferate. So it's not an example of a beneficial mutation, even though paradoxically in certain circumstances you you don't get malaria. But there are lots of other examples like that that uh, people used to uh, point to and they still do. We all know about the, uh, uh, the superbugs, what we, uh, we call uh, bacterial resistance, where uh, bacteria seem to be, if you didn't know the mechanism, they seem to be evolving resistance to, uh, to uh, antibiotics. But they're not actually doing that. And I'm going to uh, show you a demonstration of why it's a backward step rather than a forward step, even though they can to- cause terrible damage. This is an example of a uh, bacterium called Helicobacter pylori, and it's the one that's often imp- implicated in stomach ulcers. And uh, th- this little, uh, little fellow, uh, what happens is that uh, because antibiotics are um, designer drugs, uh, the biological pathways in the bacteria have been examined and uh, the antibiotic gets absorbed into the bacterium but because it then attacks a biological pathway the uh, uh, enzyme in the bacterium converts it to a poison and so it kills him. But of course if he's got a, uh, a defect like a mutation where he doesn't produce that, uh, that uh, enzyme then he survives and this is how it works with the, uh, the mutant. He gets the antibiotic into him alright but because he can't produce the enzyme, he paradoxically survives in the presence of the uh, antibiotic because he's got uh, less infer- uh, that one uh, doesn't seem to be transferring anyway, let's see It uh, seems to have seized up a little, I think, Peter, uh, but we'll see if we uh, can continue on. So, although the uh, bacteria are weaker, uh, hello, we've gone... Uh, <laughs> I don't know how we go back now. No. All right, I might need a, a little bit of uh, rescue here because I've... Uh, uh, I've missed out on a few slides that I really wanted to show you. And I'm not sure how we're going to... How do I go back, Peter? Can you go back about three or four slides? Back, 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 uh, back, back. Uh, okay. Now now we'll go forwards again. Okay. All right. We'll go forwards. We'll go forwards. We'll go forwards. We'll go forwards. Right. Okay. Alright, so he he, uh, <laughs> he survives because he's got less information. But of course a lot of people who, uh, who think they know do not realise that that's really what's happening. And I've got a slide here of a uh, 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 Well, letters to the editor, I think probably from uh, a copy of The Australian quite a a few years ago. And uh, what happened there was there had been a bit of a debate on evolution and these people uh, wrote into uh, the uh, uh, letters to the editor and I've highlighted a uh, a couple of the uh, comments there and you may not be able to read it, but the first one uh, calls himself a Senior Lecturer in Entomology in the University of Adelaide. So he's an expert. He knows what he's talking about. The, The next guy is a honorary Research Consultant, Department of Mathematics, University of Queensland. So he's a scientific expert. He knows what he's talking about. And the next one calls himself uh, Dr Rory, whatever his name is, from the ACT. So they're all saying that they're experts and they know what they're talking about. And this is the sort of thing that they've said. This guy says, The evolution of resistance of diseases to antibiotics and pesticides threatens our future health and well-being. The next one says, if he wants evidence of evolution in action, bacteria are evolving as fast as new antibiotics can be developed. And the next guy says, evolution is causing major health problems as microorganisms develop resistance to drugs. Now, what they are actually showing is that they do not understand the mechanism because it is a backward step. They have not evolved anything, they haven't changed as a result of antibiotic pressure. The change was already there but because they were mutants and they were uh, less robust than the wild type uh, they really didn't have any effect until the wild type gets eliminated. So it's an example of backwards rather than forwards, therefore it is not evolution. And that uh, mutations like that are one of the only mechanisms, only two mechanisms that evolutionists have suggested are able to get evolution going. The other is what we call natural selection or survival of the fittest. But even that does not demonstrate evolution either. And I'm going to uh, point to the example of some dogs so that we, uh, uh, we can see that. We've got all these different types of dogs, but they're all obviously dogs. And what they have done is they have adapted to their various environments, but they haven't done it by adding new genetic information. What they've done is they have reshuffled existing information that God created to suit a particular environment, but it's usually associated with a loss of some information. And we're going to have a look at how that works by taking an example of a couple of dogs like this. Now, here we've got two dogs and we're going to imagine those uh, uh, two dogs, right? We're going to imagine that those little red things in the middle of their tummy are genes for the length of their fur. And you can see that those two dogs have got one gene for long fur and one gene for very short fur. And so the combination of those two genes means that these two dogs have got medium length fur. Okay? Now, when they have progeny, what we see is that if the... uh, the pup gets the two genes for short fur, he's a puppy with very, very short fur. If he gets one inch from mum and dad, he will look very much like mum and dad with uh, medium length fur. But if he gets the two genes for long fur, he's a very, very hairy dog indeed. So he really hits the jackpot. And when you have a look at these, uh, these dogs, you can see that uh, uh, the one with long fur might be well adapted to uh, cold climates. The one with short fur might be well adapted to, uh, to, cool, uh, to warm climates. But if we then look at the ones with only long fur, what we find is that uh, if they reproduce they only have that one gene. It's, it's doubled, but they only have the one. So they can only ever produce progeny with long fur. So if they were in a very, very warm climate, then they may not survive because they can't do anything to change the coats that they are wearing. What's happened is that they have lost the genes for short fur. So they have uh, adapted to a cold climate if you like by losing information and that's the sort of thing that we see happening in survival of the fittest or adaptation. It is a reshuffling of the information that is already there generally with a loss of some of that information. There is no way of adding Information that you don't already have. So, natural selection is not a way of adding information, therefore, evolution cannot progress by natural selection because it is generally a backward step rather than a forward step. And I'm going to stick with uh, the example of dogs because we can see how uh, man can really do damage to animals by his artificial selection, not just uh, not natural selection. And I'm going to take the example of, we're probably familiar with that uh, very well-known British dog show called Crufts, probably the most famous dog show in the world. And there's been lots of criticism over the years for Crufts and other dog shows because of the damage that they actually do to dogs. And there was a, a scandal a few years ago at Crufts because there was a claim after the event that the winner of Top Dog, Best Dog in Show, had actually had plastic surgery to enable it to, uh, to win the title. And it was a Pekingese and uh, along with other dog breeds, peaks have often been very badly damaged by dog shows. And uh, there's uh, a peak up there on the, uh, the the top right. I don't think that was the one. But uh, the Pekingese have got these typical flat faces that the uh, show judges are looking for. But you see, the genetics that produces the flat face uh, is not joined to the genetics that produced the size of their palate. And in this particular dog, the flat of the face which was what the judge was looking for meant that their palate was pushed backwards and the dog couldn't breathe. So it had to have plastic surgery to excise the palate so that it could breathe. Now, the judge wouldn't have known that but that only came to light afterwards. But you see there's a lot of kudos in having the winner at the uh, the dog show and I think that particular one was a male so money always talks so it's going to uh, command a very very high price as a sire so that defect is going to be propagated to all its so you're going to end up with a problem with all the uh, little dogs that are descended from that particular winner of the show. And uh, the same sort of thing happens with a lot of the other dog breeds. Now the uh, one on the left is a pug. Our daughter had two pugs and we used to take them for uh, uh, for walks and it was absolutely terrible. They, they'd be going for... Uh, ha, ha half a mile or something like that, and they'd be puffing and panting. They couldn't breathe because the, the, they have obstructed breathing because they've got these flat faces that uh, have been bred into them. And Peaks and French bulldogs like we've got there and British bulldogs, because judges at the shows have been going for the size of their head, the genetics that produce the big head does not produce a big pelvis in the bitches. And so all of those dogs like pugs, British Bulldogs and French Bulldogs have to be born by Caesarean. They can't be born naturally. So uh, that's one of the reasons why they're so expensive, of course. But, uh, but really, if man hadn't, uh, uh, wasn't around, then that breed would die out because they would not be able to uh, reproduce uh, naturally. And there are a lot of other dogs that are in a similar position. And the problems are man-made. The show judges select for what they uh, think is a desirable appearance, uh, but with no other changes in the uh, the dog's genetics, then there is a uh, an ongoing problem. And in breeding, like in, in uh, 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 pedigree dogs, uh, just concentrates all the undesirable mutations. So the changes are always downhill, both in mutations or natural selection. So when you look at the biology, you see that evolution really is impossible. But there's another, uh, another story that I want to uh, talk about and this is one of the reasons why I read that second passage from the Book of Acts. Because uh, the word of God tells us both in Genesis and in Acts that uh, every human being on the face of the earth is descended from the survivors of the flood. Paul said in Acts to the, uh, the Greeks, he said, God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And when we look at uh, biology in action in mankind, we find that it supports the creation story and the time frame because the Bible is clear that everyone now on the face of the earth, regardless of their ethnic group or their skin colour, is descended from these three sons of Noah. And uh, when we look at what the time frame is, it's only back about four and a half thousand years ago. So we have all descended from those three boys four and a half thousand years ago. It's not a very long time. Now, the evolutionary story of mankind, of course, is completely different. You know, we've been going through stone ages and we go back hundreds of thousands of years and all of this sort of thing. But the Bible is quite contrary to that. It's only a little over 4,000 years. So we're going to have a look at the family tree of those boys. Noah had them as the three sons and then he had 16 grandsons. Each of those Japheth had seven, Ham had four and Shem had five. And here are all those grandsons listed. And it seems from their names or the names that have progressed that they must have become the tribal leaders because all over Europe and the uh, Middle East we find cities and nations and languages named after those 16 grandsons of Noah. Uh, for example, we find the uh, uh, Gomer gives its name, uh, his name to the Germans the Medes or Persians after Madai. Uh, Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, is named after Tubal. Moscow is named after uh, Meshach. Tyre and the Thracians named after Tiras. So all of the northern Europeans descended from Japheth, those names are persisting in uh, in Europe even to this day. If we then go to, uh, to Shem, the Semites, the, uh, uh, the Arabs and the Jewish people are named after Shem. Uh, the Assyrians of old, they're named after another son of, uh, of Shem called Asher. Uh, the language Aramaic that uh, Jesus spoke named after Aram, another son of Shem. So that we can see that these names are even persisting today. So common sense tells you it cannot possibly go back hundreds of thousands of years. It's obviously very, very recent. And uh, Cush and Put are old names for Egypt. Uh, One of his uh, sons was Canaan, the land of Canaan and the Canaanites. So this is uh, solid evidence that perfectly matches a book that was written three and a half thousand years ago. And the book says that those, uh, those four men and their wives were the only human survivors of a global flood and the only land animals to survive were those with them in a huge ship. All the other animals died. Now, the secular world wants to deny that, but wherever you go throughout the world, there are cultures that have a flood story completely independent of the Bible. And those flood stories have got similar themes like uh, uh, people and animals saved from a flood in a large boat. And uh, those stories are completely separated from what the, uh, the Bible has said. And when, when we have a look at uh, genetics worldwide, we find that it's absolutely consistent with everything that the Bible says. There's a, uh, a guy that uh, the secularists call Y-chromosome Adam because in human genetics only men have got a Y-chromosome. And for all men on the face of the earth today, their Y-chromosome can be traced back to one man. And of course, although they don't believe he's the biblical Adam, for obvious reasons they call him Y-chromosome Adam, Right? So all men trace their Y chromosome back to one man. And it's very similar if we look at the female line because there's a lady that science calls mitochondrial Eve because when we have a look at an egg cell, uh, we find that within that cell, not in the nucleus, there are these structures called mitochondria and they've got a little bit of DNA in them. And those mitochondria are only passed on from the female line because they're part of the egg cell. The father does not contribute anything to the mitochondria. And everybody on the face of the earth can trace their mitochondrial DNA back to one woman. And so, for obvious reasons, they call her mitochondrial Eve. And the interesting thing about it is that although it traces back to one woman, there are three very slightly different strands of mitochondrial DNA consistent with the three wives of the three boys in the ark. So wherever you look, wherever you go with human biology, you find that we all trace back to one man and one woman. Now the secular world can't really explain how that could be. They call them Y chromosome Adam and mitochondrial Eve but they call that jokingly because they don't believe they were the biblical Adam and Eve. But of course it's consistent with them being the biblical Adam and Eve. We can never say that what we discover proves the Bible is true but we can definitely say that it is always consistent with what the Bible says. Okay, we could then ask, does it really matter? It's all very interesting, but does it matter? And the answer, of course, is it does, because it actually has a huge bearing on the Gospel that the creation story is true. And I'm going to put up what an atheist said in a debate with a Christian. This was a guy called uh, uh, Frank Zindler. And this is what he said in the debate. He said, the most devastating thing that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know, he said, that Adam and Eve never were real people, then the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. He said, if there never was an Adam and an Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there's no need of salvation. And if there's no need of salvation, no need of a saviour. So he says that puts Jesus, whether he be a historic figure or not, into the ranks of the unemployed. He said, I think that evolution is absolutely the death knell of Christianity. Now, you might disagree with him, but you can't fault his logic because it's absolutely true that if evolution is true, then the Bible is wrong. Uh, Undermining the creation story in Genesis undermines the Gospel. And people might say, yeah, but (coughs) it's not a salvation issue. You're not uh, saved or lost whether or not you believe the creation story as Genesis says it. And that might be true for the individual Christian but it is a salvation uh, uh, issue for those who reject the Jesus event because they've been persuaded that the Bible is actually myth and legend. So so, uh, those people are lost because they can't believe the Jesus story because they have been indoctrinated with the evolutionary story. Now in my journey I was one of them for nearly half of my life and uh, it's only by the grace of God that I can stand here today and, uh, and say what I've said to you. So uh, what I would like to summarise by saying is that it all comes back to the total truth of this book which was written about three and a half thousand years ago. And everywhere you look, the evidence confirming its truth is undeniable and it's never changed. Whereas by contrast, the evolutionary story is concocted stories and they have to keep changing when more information becomes available. And at Creation Ministries, our contention is that the book is totally true and uh, when you look at our present world and the way it's going I think in the months to come and months and years to come we are going to need to depend on its total truth like never before. Particularly the areas where it talks about God's promises to his people for their protection and sustenance in times of uh, real trouble. Society is not getting better, it's going backwards but by the grace of God his word never changes. So I'm going to uh, stop there and I'd like just to, uh, to pray to conclude. Lord, we, uh, we do thank you for all the things that you have revealed to us uh, that are absolutely consistent with your word. It has never changed, and it never will change. Your word is truth, and it's righteous altogether. And so, Father, we, uh, we just come to you now, we submit ourselves to its truth, the dependence on it, Uh, dependence on you for every breath that we take every step that we walk and every, uh, every mouthful that we eat. So Father we say that we are dependent on you we thank you for what you do for us and look after us in Jesus name. Amen.